everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. I'm Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman back from quarantine. It's good to be back together I have been again. released from my prison, and so it's nice to be back. Yes, yeah, good to have you back. Last week, Joshua Jones and I talked about the theology and ecology of technology, truncated the title to not include all of those ologies, but I uh, got some great feedback on that episode. So grateful for Joshua being here. Today, we are pivoting to talk about liberation theology. Drew, why don't you tee up where we're going today with liberation theology? We're going to look at a theological movement that began, you could probably say in the 60s, in the father of liberation theology, a Peruvian Catholic theologian named Gustavo Gutierrez, in his book, A Theology of Liberation. But then there's been a ton of spinoff movements from that. And it's been interesting because it'll rebound in popularity in different places and at different times. And I think um, right now, especially in a lot of American Western circles, there's some real prominence to it. So we're going to look at it. We're going to look at what are some of the things we can learn and maybe some of the things we can critique. Um, Before we dive into it, though, I uh, think this is a good time, Mick, for you to give us a reminder on a previous episode where we talk about suspending assumptions. And a lot of the purpose of this podcast, we are intentionally trying to avoid binary thinking, you know, something is either good or bad all the way, but instead discernment thinking where we are looking at complex and nuanced topics and asking the question, what does this look like gridded through the lens of a disciple under the lordship of Jesus? And how do we identify? How do I identify with humility places we need to grow? And how do we identify thought processes that we need to be wary of? And so um, before we dive into liberation theology, I actually want to use this as an opportunity. I, I think the win for us today, more than Mick or I, giving all of you the answers of how to think about a specific topic. It's um, inviting you into a conversation about how we might try to think as Christians in a complex world. Yeah, you explained that really well. I don't have much to add to that other than these topics are incredibly complex. And to deal with complex topics takes some intellectual humility and use this phrase, this kind of non-binary thinking that something is either black or white. Now, there are certain things within faith and Christianity and Christian doctrine that are certainly black and white. Did Jesus raise bodily from the dead or not? Did he ascend to heaven? Will he return for the bride? And so on and so forth. Even within those, though, there are some nuances in terms of how we could talk about that and think about that. But generally speaking, those are widely held orthodox beliefs within the Christian faith. There are other things, though, that uh, philosophies and branches of theology that are so nuanced and complex and so cover such a broad spectrum of ideas that to simply group something into, like like you just said, Drew, this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, can be, in, in logic, you have the false dilemma that there are only two possible paths where the reality is far much more complex than that. We talked about the layers or the stages of adult cognitive development, that the higher stages require us to momentarily suspend our assumptions. It's the lens through which we look at the world that we're often not aware of. Picture 
you know, a set of reading glasses sitting on the bridge of your nose for so long that you forget they're even there. Or some people forget they have their contacts in and fall asleep in them. Those are the lenses through which we assess the world and forget that they're that they are a framework that we are assessing the world by. And suspending assumptions is just, it's taking those glasses off, it's taking that lens off and hanging it out in front of you to assess the framework itself before even assessing the idea, the ethic, the philosophy that is in question. What's the framework with which I understand the world, taking into consideration family of origin and and my own background and beliefs and ways of thinking. And that does, it requires a higher level of cognition, a higher level of cognitive development to do that because our the way we understand the world is a part of us. It is scary to suspend our assumptions because we, we come to identify with how we understand the world. But in order to, to gain a deeper appreciation for the complexity and to think more holistically about certain things, it requires that we do that from time to time. It doesn't mean to reject our assumptions. It doesn't mean to completely overturn them. It just means to have the the intellectual courage to assess them. Does this correspond with truth? Does this correspond with scripture? Now, with that, I can approach something like critical theory or liberation theology with a much uh, deeper appreciation for the complexity and look for the areas it aligns and does not align with truth. Amen. And uh, as you said, there are some things we know to be true, and we start with those, and then that's how we evaluate everything else. And it's the person of Jesus as revealed in Scripture and the authority of Scripture. It's the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and it's our membership as part of Christ's body, both his, in history and um, around the world today. I, I start there, and then that's how we evaluate this kind of thing. The reason we're diving into liberation theology and really any topic that we have have broached on this podcast is we're trying to identify things that are affecting all of us that we may not realize what they are. And I think this is a great example of that. So many of you, when I say the phrase liberation theology, you may not have ever heard that before or only heard it in passing. Uh, I imagine as we dive into this episode, you'll start to realize that the thinking behind it you are very familiar with. And I see a lot of posts on social media or hear people say things that are very much originate in liberation theology. And some of the things that are said are things I wholeheartedly agree with, and others are things that I I am concerned about. And I'm not sure that people have thought through the theology behind all the statements. And so that being the case, uh, let, let me dive into a few distinctives. I already told you a little bit of background of where this originated, but it started in Latin America in the 60s and the 70s. And there are a lot of variants to it. So let me just preface this by saying that. And, and that's true for almost any theological movement. You, it's very easy to paint with a broad brush and assume that everybody who calls themselves a liberation theo- theologian thinks the same. That is no more true of saying the same thing about evangelicalism or Pentecostalism or any other theological movement. So there is a wide variety. I would encourage you to start, uh, if you're wanting to dig into this, um, with Gustavo Gutierrez and um, the Theology of Liberation, because that, I think most people would say, the person who uh, first compiled it, and then there's a lot of spinoffs that have come from there. So here are some key distinctives you'll find pretty consistently. First is that God has a preferential option for the poor. That's something that is almost widely shared now across almost all branches of the church, but that that terminology originated in liberation theology. Um, The second is the understanding that God is at work to set the oppressed free. And there is a view of salvation in liberation theology that is spiritual, 
but they would expand that to be holistic. Not necessarily that we'll see the fullness of that in this life, but they would understand when we talk about salvation, there is a spiritual liberation that takes place from sin, but there are also other forms of wholeness, restoration that extend all the way into the political sphere and social structures. And so they, they would be big, big proponents on the whole work of the cross. And you might have heard people talk about that, um, a holistic view of salvation. And there's other theological groups that will talk about that, including we're going to dive into charismatic theology for the next episode, and you'll hear similar language. It's meant a little differently, um, but that's definitely a theme of liberation theology. Third distinctive is that, that um, theology and scripture were written by the oppressed and for the oppressed, and thus the oppressed and marginalized have unique insight into what scripture means. And I'm going to unpack that here in a bit, but that's a really key point, is that the oppressed have a unique window into reality based on their location and based on their experience that other people do not have. A fourth distinctive is that orthopraxy is orthodoxy. With this, you see that you cannot separate orthopraxy as right living or right practice, and orthodoxy is right thinking, and that the two, if you are a Christian, you cannot separate those two. You cannot claim to have abstract right thinking if that does not actually turn into practice. Fifth is that part of the role of the church is to bring the kingdom through direct action, and this is um, in liberation theology, in partnership with the world to set the oppressed free. And so the church cannot be a neutral bystander in the face of oppression, but partners. And there's actually a very broad understanding of the church where really the church shakes hands with the world around us and we all work together to bring God's kingdom to this earth through direct action. Lastly, a distinctive of um, liberation theology is that it will look to science or social sciences. It will look to outside movements. And and I'm going to use this word carefully. I, I moderately authoritatively. And what I mean by that is they, they lean very heavily on, on scientific or sociological analysis, but there, there is critical reflection on it as well. And I, I think there's probably some who at Critique Liberation Theology that miss the fact that liberation theolo- theologians, by and large, they don't just draw from, from secular sources. They do critically reflect on it. But you will see that a lot more in liberation theology than you would other movements. Historically, that is most associated with Marxism. And so where you would find this in history would be in the 60s and 70s in Latin America um, in the face of giant income inequality and post-colonialism. There was a real movement to say, can the church be cozy with power and oppressive dictatorships while the vast majority of the poor suffer and do nothing? And there was a lot of cultural revolution going on at that time. And so what liberation theologians did is they found Marxist analysis to be very insightful into what was going on, but then they tried to reformulate it with Christian theology, but it still had a very revolutionary flair to it. And there are some liberation theologians that would even advocate literal revolution. Others wouldn't go that far. And of course, as you can imagine, that's where a lot of the controversy originated. These days, it's less about Marxism and more about critical theory, which we talked about a few episodes ago, or other ideological movements. And within liberation theology, the idea is that the oppression is located within social structures, right? So that the antidote needs to be some kind of political action. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's they would have a um, broad view of sin. And so... 
Uh, Gutierrez would, would acknowledge that sin is personal, but it's also corporate. And therefore, salvation is personal, but it's also corporate. And they would advocate that there are political structures that um, or more in line with the kingdom. And the church's responsibility is to deal with the structures. Yeah, and that, that's a great point, is that oppression and the root of oppression is located in social structures. And a lot of liberation theology, when you get into it, they're going to talk about mass overhaul of existing systems. Basically, that a lot of existing systems are irredeemable, and instead we need to start new. And, and you'll hear liberation theologians really critique people who talk about reform. A lot of times they'll look at that as just a backdoor way to maintain the status quo and maintain power for the people who have power. At the, and they would say that that's at the expense of the poor or the marginalized. And so they would talk about the whole structure is sinful. And unless we just completely, completely overthrow or dismantle the structure, we cannot see manifestations of the kingdom. So as I hear you unpack that, Drew, there's a lot in that, to me, that aligns with the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus. So kind of as we start to parse this out, what do you see that is good and that does align with Orthodox Christian teaching and practice throughout the centuries? Yeah, I'll start off by saying there's a lot I'm sympathetic towards. And I, you know, I was reading some of this. It's it's an interesting experience. Um, more than other things I've read, there's parts of it where it's yes and amen. And I really you know, I'm underlining and saying, wow, that's so good. And then there's other parts where I profoundly disagree with. But but I am. I, I think liberation theology has at times, even though I, in a little bit, am going to critique it pretty heavily, I think a lot of critique has been unfair. So I want to just get that disclaimer out there. And I think there's a lot of good points that we can learn. So uh, a few things that I would throw out there. Let me start by saying any broad theological tradition is going to have some really bad application to it. This goes back to us suspending our assumptions. We have to be careful to not take the extreme thing that somebody did and paint with a broad brush over a whole tradition. Develop a caricature of that tradition from one. And, you know, as uh, I've lived my whole life in the charismatic world, so I'm probably especially sensitive to that, where people use the extreme actions of a few to try to discount everything. So I think if you read, you know, even some of my own objections prior to reading some of the source material, I realized that, no, there's actually some really good thinking here that's nuanced. And so let me just give you that that disclaimer. And, I, you know, a few things I think that have really, that I think are powerful. One is if you understand the social environment of, I don't know that any of us as listeners or very few uh, had the experience of growing up in dictatorships that this emerged out of. And I, I think we need to really recognize that how I read the Bible does matter. And, you know, you think about apartheid in South Africa where liberation theology also was prominent or um, there was some of this in black theology in America and uh, in the civil rights movement. You know, and I think we need to really pay attention to that and recognize that for those in that kind of oppression and unjust systems, they're going to see things and their theology is going to reflect that. And, you know, I think as well, I think it's a really powerful rebuke to say, how can we as the body of Christ in those environments sit by and do nothing? Now, I think we have to be careful about what we do, and I'll get into that in a minute, but I think this idea that I can be a good church-going person while I walk by in my own neighborhood and I tolerate in my own city all forms of oppression and I don't even care, I think a lot of the message of liberation theology is a challenge to that way of thinking. And I wholeheartedly agree and am personally convicted by that. And I think that's something as Christians um, we, we really need to recognize that just because we're not suffering as a Christian, I am stepping into or open to 
an awareness of what's happening in the world. Let me just pause you there, Drew, because that's a really important point. When we talk about training somebody how to think, this is a really critical component to step into somebody else's shoes, to try to see the world through the lens that they are seeing the world through. When I'm encountering somebody that's coming from a different viewpoint, often I want to hear their story first before talking about whatever the issue is. Because once you can hear somebody's story and their background, often how they have arrived at what they have come to believe starts to make a lot of sense and it breeds empathy. And I think that's a process and a skill that's lacking in our culture today. So we have such polarization, let's say in politics or in religion or sociology and how we're approaching social issues. This inability to, again, suspend our assumptions, but then to step into somebody else's experience and see how they arrived at what they arrived at breeds a necessary component, a necessary understanding then to try to hold these two viewpoints in tension and to see the truth that is embedded in somebody else's way of thinking or some other theological tradition before casting judgment on it. And that, that you know, even if I critique something when I can understand them as a person, uh, it really helps me. And And I find too, there are times I think all of us are blind to certain things and all of us have things that are a lot more cultural than they are biblical. And as I can sit back and listen to somebody, what I know to be true is the word of God and the person of Jesus and the leadership of the spirit. And so that's my plumb line. I'm absolutely not a relativist, but by um, having a posture of humility and listening and an awareness that somebody with different life experience is going to interpret something differently than I, I am, I think there's actually a richness of helping me to understand the word of God that I would otherwise miss. But that's also the place of discernment, because as we go through that process, it also sharpens maybe what some of our concerns might be. Another thing that I think we can learn from liberation theology is the link between orthopraxy and orthodoxy. And I'm going to do two angles on this. Gutierrez is very clear that the two need each other, and he describes it as a circle, and he'll even talk about what happens if you only have one. So if I am going off of his thinking, I could not agree more. I think the idea that we can somehow know God independent of doing anything with the, with our knowledge of God is a very Greek way of thinking and I think has held the church back theologically for a long time. And I don't see, you know, everything I see in scripture and the example of Jesus is that the knowledge of God is anchored in our in our life, that it's, it's not enough for us to just know facts about God or, or somehow think that we can have the knowledge of God without God being part of that knowledge. Instead, you know, I, I think of the whole Sermon on the Mount. I think of the parable of the house on the sand versus the house on the rock. I, you know, I just, you could go through example after example, James 1, of the importance of our knowledge of God leading to our action. And then as we act, we in turn know more about God. So the two feed each other. Now, I have heard some people recently just drop orthodoxy entirely or minimize it. They would be in conflict with Gustavo Gutierrez, and so, but I have no doubt that other people have gone so far on that side, and, and of course, I, I think that's concerning and, and not helpful. But I think we could also, in the same breath, say I think there's a whole lot more people in the church over the years that have been content to just have orthodoxy without that actually forming their praxis. And the whole point, you know, in so much of what we talk about in our church, and I know for us, Mick, so much of what we talk about in our teaching is the life of a disciple. And to me, that's where those link together is I'm going to follow Jesus and that's going to shape my mind and that's also going to shape my behavior and those two can't be separated. And so I really appreciate that. As well, within that, Gutierrez is really clear on the supremacy of revelation 
And again, I, I think there are plenty of people who've maybe gone down this road of liberation theology that are willing to give up revelation for the sake of, you know, various outcomes that they can see. But just to be fair to him, he's clear on that. And I think if you're clear on the supremacy of God's own revelation and the importance of the relationship between orthopraxy and orthodoxy, I think that's a great formulation. And I think that we really need to learn from it. Then lastly, I think this whole idea, us recognizing who we are as Americans, and most of the people listening to this podcast are Americans or those in the Western world, we are some of the wealthiest and most powerful people in human history. And that immediately puts us at a disadvantage in reading the Bible. You know, if you actually think of scripture, it was written by nomads, slaves, exiles, and a persecuted religious minority group. That, that is the context of scripture. And if you want to go deeper, who were the words of the prophets directed towards? It was those with wealth and power. Not that wealth itself is bad. It's just it is written from the voice of both the oppressed and the ones rebuking the oppressors. And, you know, even as you look in the ministry of Jesus, you see that same theme. And so I, I definitely reject this kind of polemic Marxist class structure idea and where, you know, it's us versus them and everything. And I think that's unhealthy. And, and so, you know, I think we need to be careful not to take it that far. But I do think, I, I do think we can learn just recognizing, like, as I read the Bible, I am not reading it the way through the same life experience as the one who did. And so... Uh, it doesn't mean that I, I can, I still feel I can be very confident in understanding scripture, but I think I need to recognize how I approach the Bible is different from how the people who wrote it would have experienced some of those same, same ideas. And, and, you know, liberation theology points that out. And I, and I think as we talk about world Christianity and the church around the world today, I, I think you see that at play of just as I'm with my brothers and sisters in India or different parts of the world, I need to believe that they're probably going to have some insight into the word of God based on the fact that many of them are the marginalized, and I need to learn from them. I need to walk in humility, and I need to really recognize that they're going to have insight that I don't have as I approach Scripture, and I need to listen to that. So, Drew, you outlined some places where you think that liberation theology certainly overlaps with the biblical uh, ethic. Where are some places of departure that you find with liberation theology? Just to give you a roadmap, um, today we will cover the first critique, which is Anytime we try to correlate the authority of Christian teaching with some other thing or philosophy or ideology that we hold as an equal authority, and I'll get into that here in just a moment. Um, the other two that we'll save for the, the next episode are anytime we place our hope in human agency and power to achieve an outcome in the world today, I think we are putting ourselves on a dangerous path, and we're going to talk about that contrasted to a better understanding of our participation in God. And then lastly, we're going to ask the question, is liberation theology actually representative of the poor? And I don't believe that it fully is. I actually think there are some other things that we could look at if our goal is to listen and our goal is to understand what the rest of the world and the rest of the Christian world is trying to tell us. I don't know that that is predominantly liberation theology, and I'm going to instead offer a different solution that I think should be our primary attention and our primary focus. So let's dive into the first critique. Number one, anytime theology looks to some kind of secular ideology as an equal, it scares me. To be fair to liberation theology, I am not saying that all liberation theology does, but I do think it happens in liberation theology more overtly than other theological forms. 
I, I certainly think it would be a fair critique to say that there are elements of even conservative evangelical theology that do this maybe a little bit more implicitly, maybe not quite as explicitly as liberation theology does, but uh, I, I will be an equal opportunity offender in what I'm saying right now and recognize that this could look different in different places. But it just that this is something I, I think we could all be careful about. There's a few theologians, John Milbake and James K.A. Smith, talk about correlationist theology. And what they're meaning by that is where I uphold something else as an authority. And I believe that my job as a Christian is to reconcile this external authority with the authority of Scripture. You end up introducing a foreign concept. And I think that always leads us down the wrong road. What I'm not saying is we can't utilize the language of science or philosophy or sociology but when all of a sudden that thing becomes an equally weighted authority, that's where we have trouble. And you can go back to our first few episodes because we really dive into that. that. That's, you know, with liberation theology, it's Marxist class analysis. And you're really building a theology that is dependent. And, and I think this is true. I think ultimately, I think if you take that out of liberation theology, I don't know that liberation theology can still stand. And so there's a lot of really great Christian theology, but there's also Marxist class analysis that's right at the core of it as well. And I don't, you know, it'd be kind of tough to separate the two of those. And so we have to be careful about that. I think we do this in cultural Christianity here in America. Same, same kind of deal. We have these very American cultural assumptions that we have allowed to be wedded to theology and you end up losing the kingdom in the midst of that. And it's just, it, we don't want it to be on par with the revelation of God. So do you use that analysis? Sure, use the analysis. But when push comes to shove, it can't be an equal authority. I think one hallmark of this way of thinking uh, that I see pretty consistently is where people try to reduce the gospel to one element of the gospel, and then they lean on some kind of secular ideology for the rest. And, you know, and, and I think if, if I reduce the gospel, though, to be very fair to Gutierrez, he does not do this, but I, I think in practice, there is a pull towards this where the gospel can get flattened if we're not careful towards human liberation in the political system. And that then is where the theology takes place. And then I, I lean on the secular world for the action, for the partnership, for the analysis, for the activation. And that is what what can happen. And, and it really can take on so many different forms. And so I'm, I'm please hear me. I'm not trying to just pick on liberation theology, but I, I especially see it strongly in liberation theology. And I see it also strongly in cultural Christianity in America, just maybe with a different flavor. Yeah, actually, if you pay attention, most theological movements, most even kind of denominational movements have their, this sounds negative, but their kind of pet scriptures, if you will. I am wary of any movement that emphasizes a certain set of the teachings of Jesus or a certain set of the kind of counsel of God in the scriptures to the neglect of others. And certainly there are different movements and whether they're church movements or theological movements that God raises up to emphasize something for a kind of moment in time that maybe has been neglected. But I still think that can be done in balance. So to our listeners, uh, I think the exhortation here is to pay attention to the whole counsel of God, to be a responsible follower of Jesus, to be, as we, we did a whole podcast on being biblically formed and that might have seemed like, a, seemed like a departure from us talking about these various ologies and philosophies and so on. But the reason is because if we are not equipped to place certain 
ways of thinking into the whole context of scripture, then we are at risk of being swept along by certain ideologies or very strong communicators or ways of thinking that are not holistic. And that's a great place to pause for today. Drew, thank you for teeing that up for us. We will continue our discussion of liberation theology next week. Thank you guys for tuning in and listening, and we will catch you next time on Ideology. Ideology.